We're continuing to look at the events that come into the earth around the time of the return of Christ. And again, I, I want to reiterate, as I have in as I have multiple times, that the concept of being caught out and going to heaven, and what's famously called the rapture, leaves all these unanswered things. What we have done is we've waded into the swamp, as it were. You know, there are all these sort of floating around ideas about the return of the Lord without any clear and specific guidelines, theological guidelines, as to how we ought to see these things. Now, they're stated, it's not the fault of Scripture, it's the fault of bad theology or no theology at all where once we get raptured out, then we don't really care what happens. So all these unanswered questions exist and people are stumbling around in the darkness. And look, the average believer hardly spends any time in the Word. So how are they going to know these more complex things, which really are not complex, it's that the end of the age is also the culmination of everything that remains unfinished. And, and quite specifically, some things were designed to not be finished until the end of the age. So, for example, the main conflict between God and Satan was designed to be concluded at the end of the age. Uh, all of what Satan has launched upon the earth to gain and to maintain power and hegemonic control over human beings, all of what he's built out, his system called the cosmos, that has to reach its apogee, its fullness, and it has to be judged. Mankind, beginning with Adam and more particularly with uh, Cain, who rejected the ways of God. And as scriptures say, all we as sheep have gone uh, astray, turning everyone to his own way. There has to be uh, a finality associated with that matter of choice. We know there are two choices. You can choose to return unto the Lord by way of accepting salvation and being transformed from one kingdom to another. But what about those who don't agree with that and continue on under the deception of Satan who feeds their lust and, and, and uh, who continue to do exactly as they please? What about those? Is there no, no final summation of any of that? What about the other instruments that Satan uses to perfect his warfare against God as that warfare is principally directed against the saints? You know, how, how is that uh, resolved? You know, one of those instruments being uh, the false church, the harlot, 
another being a spokesman uh, identified in scripture as the anti-Messiah primarily because he speaks blasphemously against God. And more than just speech, uh, he directs the activities of that kingdom that enjoys the support of Satan's power, throne, and authority uh, as a primary instrument of war against the saints. Um, What about the false prophet who is a religious figure who essentially arises as the spokesman of the false church? What about all of that? And then finally, if the saints aren't raptured out, what happens to them? These are the questions. Perhaps the final question is, what happens to Satan himself? So we've waded into this swamp. This is the swamp of eschatology. And it's imperative that we do not come to this inquiry with a Roman Catholic mindset, which informs all the other religious paradigms framing and attempting to unpack eschatology. Because for the Roman Catholic mindset, going to heaven is the end of the deal. That's all that matters. They sell it uh, as a way of financing through indulgences. They have no interest and, and there's nothing spoken of except that you'll go to hell if you don't go to heaven. There's almost nothing else spoken about it and none of these questions are answered. So, we have, in summary, we have addressed what happens to the false church, the harlot. The kings of the earth destroy her. What happens to the beast that projects the power of Satan upon the earth. Well, God renders judgment on the beast first in heaven and then the prosecution of that judgment happens when the Lord Himself returns from heaven leading the armies of heaven. Included in the armies of heaven are, quote, mighty angels with flaming fire and with the company of the saints who are both the bride and the army. The false prophet is destroyed at the time when the false church is destroyed. And the false Messiah, the Antichrist, is destroyed according to 1 Thessalonians. He's described as the man of lawlessness whom God destroys with the brightness of His coming, with the word of His mouth, and with the brightness of His coming. I want to dwell just for a moment on that. I've addressed it earlier on when we spoke about it many, many sessions ago. The the Antichrist is called the man of lawlessness because he is the mouth who speaks blasphemously 
against the Most High. Lawlessness is not the absence of law according to the Scriptures. However, lawlessness is what happens when every man does what is right in his own eyes. So it's the personalization of the standard and the rejection of an eternal standard. Lawlessness then has the imperative of persuading people, whoever advocates a standard, a personal standard, has the duty of persuading others to join them in both in agreement with that standard and in the implementation of that standard. So that's why he's called a man of lawlessness. He rejects and teaches others to reject the standard of divine judgments and of divine behavior. So every man does what is right in his own eyes. And the more people you have agreeing with your standard, albeit with variations to accommodate their own preferences, that becomes a replacement standard for the divine and eternal standards which do not vary over time because they were true before there was time and they'll be true after time ends and they really speak of the person of God, the nature and character of God. So all standards are backed by a reality. Standard is merely an articulation of the governing principles of a particular authority. In the case of divine standards, they are references to the predictable nature of God and the knowable behavior of God once you know His person. Lawlessness is the attempt to alter that and to replace it with an appeal uh, to to humans according to what they lust for, according to what they want to do and in which doing they find eternal standards to be in the way, to be an obstacle and a restraint upon their behavior. As the end of the age comes, one of the main happenings uh, will be the removal of restraint. It'll be when the Holy Spirit who restrains no longer restrains. So the consciences of men are seared as with a hot iron and people begin to to think, to express their thoughts, to act, to do what's in their hearts. The Antichrist leading this global system, this global kingdom, with its many systems and its many rulers speaking blasphemously is not speaking a series of curse words, rather he's articulating the standard of what is right which is the replacement standard for the person of the living God. So every man ends up thinking he's doing what's right in his own eyes but in fact ended up being entrapped in a system that is powerful precisely because it legitimizes everybody's opinions and views 
and disregards divine standards, the inducement and enticement to believe in this standard and to practice it is because it makes you God, makes you the replacement of God. Ye shall be as gods was the original temptation. You will know what's good, you will know what's evil. I delved into that with specific examples uh, in the last, uh, in the previous message. I want to say only this, that um, the destruction of the lawless one will come about at the return of the Lord uh, and with the brightness of His appearing and with the word of His mouth. It tells us two things about the lawless one. His power is the cloak of darkness, the the way he shrouds things in half-truths, in shadows, in subterfuge, in appeals to various lusts. He never comes out or doesn't choose to come out, preferably into the open and deal with things honestly. Jesus spoke about this in Matthew 24 when He speaks of the arising of false Christs together with false prophets. False prophets, false Christ will arise in the last days. So He said, if they were to say to you that the Lord's return has been out in the desert, don't go out. Uh, or if they should say to you, He's in the upper chambers, he's in a secret place. Don't go there because he speaks of the brightness of his coming in the following terms. For as the lightning shines in the east and is seen in the west, even so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Which is to say, really, what the angel said in the book of Acts chapter 1 verse 10. This same Jesus that was taken up from you into heaven in this public manner shall so come again in the same manner in which you saw Him go into heaven. That is said in context of the earth will see the sign, in the heavens will see the sign or the banner Uh, of the Son of Man and all the nations of the earth will mourn. The brightness of His coming contrasts with the darkness, the deception of the coming of the evil one. And here, the coming of the Lord is both an event and a season. There will be a day, an actual day, called the Day of the Lord, in which the Lord Himself will be revealed from heaven with the shout of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. No one can miss it. There will be that day. Even the dead will be awakened, the dead in Christ. The dead outside of Christ will wait. It will be another thousand years before they are raised. But the first resurrection will occur at the time of the return of the Lord. But there's a season of the coming of the Lord and that is when 
the Lord whom we seek, comes, manifests himself in his people. The Lord whom you seek, according to Malachi, the end of the age, the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come into his temple. We are the temple. We're also variously referred to as a mountain. The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and exalted above the hills. Such a mountain is called Zion, uh, which is not a reference to a spot in Israel, but a reference to a spiritual reality, the highest of the mountains. The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and it shall be exalted above the hills. And men will say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, we'll walk in his path, out of Zion will come forth uh, the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Again, the references to the growing light, the glory of God appearing in the house of God, in the people of God. I mentioned several times ago that there is never a reference in Scripture to any one person being a bride of Christ because the concept of the bride of Christ is that of a corporate entity, a body, an entire being, many members, one body. Zion becomes this, as the bride makes herself ready, that represents the glory or brightness of the coming of the Lord. So the contention with the Antichrist begins before the actual day of the Lord's return, before the actual event of His second advent. It begins when the bride makes herself ready and her glorious acts, the righteousness of the saints, are met with a greater manifestation of the glory of God upon the prepared and preparing bride. Uh, to that end, as we said earlier, there has to be the debunking of the false church, the destruction of the false church. Both will not uh, exist together when the latter, the, the true body of Christ, the glorious bride on the earth, the part of this bride is in heaven and will come back with the Lord and when the change occurs in the twinkling of an eye, the rest of that bride will be caught up to meet him together with the resurrected dead. So the bride will actually be unified in heaven but the bride on earth, the bride is presently on earth and in heaven. We know what will happen to the bride in heaven, it will be joined with the bride from the earth and they will meet the Lord in the air, the two will come with him as part of that great army that he leads. That time the bride will fully clothe herself 
in the righteousness of, of her activities. But in, as I said, there's a day when the Lord is coming back and there's a season when the Lord is coming back. The season of brightness is when the bride on the earth begins to clothe herself with the glory of God. What does that look like? Well, number one, we know that the scriptures use the descriptor of her brightness as being like her garments, uh, bright and clean, fine linen bright and clean given to her to wear. This is the point at which the pushback, the pushback against this growing darkness begins to occur. God at this point will remove the false church because she, this prostitute, is the primary obscuring of the glory of the true bride. Scriptures speak to that. The book of Matthew 25 tells a parable and it goes as such, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins who took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise, five were foolish. Why would you refer to the bride of Christ as a corporate entity? Well, because the bride of Christ is a corporate entity. He's not coming back for a singular person. He's coming back for a corporate person. Hence, the kingdom of heaven is like unto ten virgins who took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. The number ten is the reference to grace multiplied grace times two. In this period of waiting, we're waiting in a condition of grace. But grace must give way to obedience if we are going to be clothed with the glory of God. We are not clothed with the glory of God in any other condition except that of obedience. Grace is a supply of an economy that is designed to lead to obedience. Obedience, however, is the making of the way for God Himself to arise within us and put Himself on display in the corporate entity known as the Bride of Christ. Both divisions, five and five, five wise, five foolish, they both exist in a condition of grace until the time comes where grace is replaced by obedience. It's the distinguishing mark, it's what says that the true bride is separated from the one that fell asleep the one that got lost in the wilderness. There will be that separation. The Lord will close the door on the unprepared 
and she remains unprepared because she indulged the fleshly passions of fame, fortune, approval of the world. Think of the fact that so many church groups now cannot speak biblical truth because they depend upon the nations for their well-being. When can the English church speak truth to the English population? When it's the church of the state. When the, when the parliament and the legislature of England and the social structure of England is the dominant of the two. It dominates the church. The English church is no more than an agent of the state and is tethered to the state and cannot go beyond that leash. That's why it has all the problems that it has. Some of its clergy would like to return to the mandates of Scripture, but the British legislature has made has granted rights to citizens of the state who by birth are also citizens of the church or members of the church, and in any conflict of rights of citizens versus members of the church, rights of citizens prevail and the church must kowtow. Look, it's just the way it is. The fact that I'm telling you, (laughs) I didn't invent this, I'm merely a reporter on what is true. Now then, the brightness of his coming that destroys the Antichrist has to do with the the growing preparedness of the true bride and that also includes the rejection of the false bride locking her out of the wedding feast. Though we've dealt with that already, the kings of the earth will deal with her because they're tired of her shenanigans, they're tired of her duplicity, they're tired of her self-seeking ways and they'll, they'll, they'll destroy her. The Antichrist himself will be destroyed by the brightness of his coming. The glory of God upon the true bride of Christ is unmistakable and there is no antidote for that in the hands of the the Antichrist. He does not have a sufficient darkness to obscure the glory of God as it appears upon the people of God. This is when the Lord whom we seek suddenly comes into his temple and it's when in his temple, from his place in the temple, he directs our obedience to God the Father. This is in preparation for the millennial age and the glory of that age and the rulership of the bride who rules along with Christ in that age and rules with a rod of iron over both the unbelievers and those disobedient believers. They believed but they they could not be turned from their disobedient ways. I'll come to that when we speak of the millennium. The glory, uh, the brightness of His coming is one of the two things 
that destroys the Antichrist. It renders him powerless. It, dis it disrobes him in the presence of all. He's naked and ashamed and his power is broken. The second thing, of course, is the word of his mouth. The Lord destroys the Antichrist with the word of his mouth and the brightness of his coming. The word of his mouth is the restoration. It's actually the way the church, the true body of Christ, functions as a city upon a hill that is contrasted with the darkness and oppression of the systems of the cosmos. The systems of the cosmos will bring about great oppression and people will be forced into agreements with these systems and acceptance of these systems just to survive, just to have enough bread to eat and a place where you're not going to be tormented uh, on a daily basis because that's an environment in which this power of oppression is aided by demonic forces that have been released out of the pit, out of the abyss. We know that from chapter 9. And when murders and adulteries and lawlessness, and, and that doesn't even include Paul's teachings to Timothy where he says perilous times will come, men will be lovers of pleasure, lovers, uh, haters of God, lovers of themselves without uh, natural affection, disobedient to honor, truce breakers, backbiters and so on. The human condition will deteriorate under the, the rule of the Antichrist and it'll be reduced to bare survival in an environment in which grace has been removed from the earth because the restrainer has been removed from the earth. The people of God, like Israel in the days of the plagues of Egypt, the people of God will still be here but they will be the city on the hill. They will not be in heaven. Well, part of that family is in heaven and has been in heaven and will continue to be and those who die upon the earth will go and be with that company. But the absence of that, of the body of the bride of Christ from the earth is not, is not what is true. It will be as a city on a hill like Israel was living in the land of Goshen at the time of the plagues of Egypt. And we're supposed to be the city on the hill clothed in the glory of God, showing the earth the better way. We will have put down racism, utterly banished it from among ourselves. We will have destroyed sexism. We will have destroyed uh, greed and corruption and hoarding. The city on the hill will be the picture of what the earth is lacking. But many will continue, most will continue in that condition pursuing the illusion of gaining control over these systems. A few will say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. It's not that we will be, 
we will be in communes on mountains. No, the idea of a city on a hill is a visible representation to all who may see that which is needful to be seen, like light in the darkness. So we'll be scattered among the nations of the earth, but our government, our system and order of government will be the order of the kingdom of God. Time does not permit me here to address that, although I have addressed it substantially in groups and series of messages such as the government of God or the kingdom of God. There by apostolic rule, everyone will know what household they belong to. There will be, as my friend Thamo Naidu says, uh, and I believe accurately so, there will be walls and gates and these are as much references to human beings in positions of authority maintaining the divine order uh, that, that is supported, strengthened and effectuated by the Lord Jesus Christ in spirit, by His Spirit dwelling among us and enabling and empowering the order of the kingdom. So one of the messages of this time uh, in preparation is the authenticity of the kingdom of heaven and its governance. It's certainly in preparation for the brightness of His appearing and the destruction of the spirit of Antichrist. So the word of His mouth and the brightness of His coming, the glory of God is reflective of the brightness of His coming, the word of His mouth has to do with the divine order and function of a people under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Together and collectively will be referred to as Zion, the perfection of beauty, out of which God shines forth as a city upon a hill, offering men the salvation of exiting from the darkness of the systems of the cosmos by which, by which time and by now in which they are firmly entrapped and embedded but for the appearing of the brightness of, of His coming. This will sow confusion in the ranks and will begin to loosen the power of the Antichrist. When the Lord Himself appears from heaven, the work will have been done in destroying the works of the devil, in destroying the lies of the Antichrist and so the Antichrist himself will be destroyed with the armies of heaven that destroy this global kingdom, this global systemic kingdom inasmuch as judgment would have been given in favor of the saints. So there is a period of preparation in which the glory, the brightness of the coming of the Lord is evident in the people of God and the Word of God becomes the foundation and basis of their order and it contrasts totally with the prostitute, sufficient so that God removes the prostitute by, allow, by turning the kings of the earth on her, much like Jezebel was destroyed in her day and in her time. Then at the actual coming of the Lord, 
the Antichrist will be destroyed along with the systems, this kingdom of which he was the main proponent and main administrator. That leaves us with the singular question, among all the enemies that are being destroyed, leaves us with the question, what happens to Satan? Well, we'll finish that in the final broadcast of this series. I'm Sam Solon, I'll see you then. Bye now.